Well, welcome as we continue the Redefining Radical. It's been going on for like weeks and weeks, but I don't know about you, because I remember I was here about six weeks ago and we were, we were probably um, a third of the way through as we are looking at the book of Corinthians and looking at the actual um, aspect of redefining radical. In other words, how are we going to do church? How are we going to do mission? And that's what the whole idea of this series was, to be able to do that. Now, last week... Ian, is Ian here today? No, he's not. He spoke a really powerful message to each one of us. Now, I've cheated because I looked it up last week. What were the three things that he spoke about? What was the first one? Starts with an S. Submission. Right, what was the second one? Servitude. The third one? Discipline, wasn't it? Discipleship or discipline, yeah. Okay, so submission, servitude, and discipleship and each one of them spoke to me in a, in a really powerful way and each week as I read the, the different, um, I guess the fact that this church, this Corinthian church that was just struggling with its identity, it came from such a difficult situation where the norm was that, that things like sexual immorality, the fact that their, their only temple was a place where prostitutes went and where basically you could go as to the temple and have sex, that was the sort of thing they were up, up against. The, the issues of the day were all contemporary and unfortunately the, the, the information that Paul had given them in the early church as they settled didn't correspond with what they had been taught. And so they really did have to redefine radical. If they wanted to stay firm as believers, they really did have to redefine. And each week, that's what we're meant to be doing. But today is a little bit different because um, in between all the difficult situations that the church faced, the Corinthian church faced, today we're looking at at a history lesson. We're going to go back and look at the history of the children of Israel. We're going right back. We're going to redefine radical by looking at the history of the, of the, um, the children of Israel as they started off on their wanderings, their 40-year wanderings in the wilderness. Today's title is called Warnings from Israel's History. Before we get onto the topic, let's pray because we need to pray today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're here today we thank you, Lord, just for the time of worship that, had, that we can worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, we're here today to learn from you, not from me, but from you, Lord. Lord, we open your word today and we ask that as we open your word, Lord, you'll speak to us through your Holy Spirit. You'll redefine radical to us. You'll speak to us, each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I was preparing this message, I spent a lot of time down at Kingston the last two weeks. We've been on holidays. We've visited our daughter in Melbourne. We've been over to Kingston. We've been to Adelaide. We've been everywhere. But as I was preparing this message, I was in Kingston and I looked at the title, Warnings from Israel's History. And as I was looking straight ahead, I saw a can of Bushman's insect repellent DEET. One of those things you have to take when you go to Darwin. It's been sitting there for four, uh, four or five years for the last time we went up north and it's still sitting there. But I read the, the, the label on it. It's interesting because... In this um, age of litigation, everything has to have warnings on it, doesn't it? So I read the... It was really quite straightforward, I suppose. It said it may be dangerous, particularly to children, if you use large amounts. So fair enough. I mean, people need to be aware. You don't use a lot of, obviously, Bushman's Deep with kids around. WD-40 was the other one next to me. Very handy for men. It said intentional misuse by deliberately concentrating and inhaling Contents can be harmful or even fatal, so keep out of reach of children. Once again, a warning. You may also be interested in some of these signs that I dug up the other day. Funniest 
warning signs. So Dave, we'll just go through some of these warning signs that I've found. It says, the dog has a gun and refuses to take his medication. So I believe that is a good one that will probably keep you out of going through that, through that, into that building. Okay, next one. Touching wise causes instant death, <laughs> but there's a $200 fine. These, these are fair income signs, I'm serious. Okay, we'll keep going. Caution. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> okay. This sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges. But you know what it says underneath? Also, the bridge is out ahead. You know, really important down the bottom. This is true. <laughs> okay. It says, oh, hang on. Do not touch. Uh, not only with, will this kill you, it will hurt the whole time you're dying. <laughs> That's true as well. <laughs> okay. Keep going. Warning, this machine takes your money and gives you nothing in return, just like my ex. <laughs> I think someone just scrambled put that one up. I think that was it. Was that it, Dave? Yeah, that's it. So there's just some of the warning signs that I've found that are a fair thing warning signs. Someone's put them up to warn people. And you know what? The Bible is full of warning signs. There's, there, as I was studying for this message, I read Psalm, I think it was 78 and Psalm 81. And... Uh, this, one of them's Asaph, one's David, and he and he was just warning the people of his time about what happened for the children of Israel, how they went through all these situations, and yet they still failed to see God's hand at work. They still failed in their life. It's interesting that Paul, after discussing and looking at all these topics, such as divisions in the church, sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, marriage, etc., and suddenly he digresses into a history lesson. Why? Because he believed it was important for us to look at this history. So today I just want to read the Bible reading today. If you've got your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians 10. And we're just going to read the first, um, I think it was the first 13 verses. So it's up there if you want to look at it, but I'll read it to you as well. So it's 1 Corinthians 10 entitled Warnings from Israel's History. And Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, that they were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did and they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So that's the word for the day.
1 Corinthians 10, 12 said, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So Paul used the nation of Israel as his example to warn the mature believers that their walk must be balanced by caution. And he gave four examples from these experiences of the children of Israel who spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But before we get into the examples, I just want to briefly just um, touch on those first five verses because remember Paul said that these people had been baptised into Moses. So in the Old Testament, as the children of Israel went through all these experiences of coming out of Egypt, now when you think about it, they there was probably, well, I think they said 600,000 men marched out. So you're looking at probably, let's say, two to three million people, which is a miracle in itself. They'd lived in Egypt for, I think, 430 years. For 400 of those years, it had been fantastic. Remember Joseph? He started it all and, he, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. So all the, all the descendants of Joseph had just um, become a huge nation. It got to a point where Egypt realised that they'd become a burden on them and what had happened was they be ended up being slaves. They were working probably from sunup to sundown. They had just enough to live on, just enough to eat. And it was pretty a, a tough existence because, well, basically they were probably building the pyramids. They were doing all that hard work, slogging it out day in, day, day, day in and day out, working for the Egyptians. And they started to cry out to God. And Moses came as God's representative and in a miraculous way they were brought out of Egypt into the, well, into uh, the, the um, what do they call it, the promised land, but it actually took 40 years and that was the problem. But they came out. How did they come out? Well, it was a miracle in itself because it was the first Passover, wasn't it? It was an incredible story of every firstborn male was, was to be killed if they didn't put the blood on their doorpost. And it didn't matter whether you're an Israelite or an Egyptian. But um, Pharaoh finally relented when he realised that all the first four males, including his, had been killed by the angel of death because they didn't do what the God had said. God had said, put the door, the blood on the doorpost and you will be saved, your firstborn will be saved. Pharaoh relented, so he sent the children of Israel out. They get to the Red Sea. Now, some historians and some you know, theologians say, oh, look, it was just a trickle at the time and you know, it was probably low tide. But I mean, if you've ever, I haven't been there, but if you see pictures of the Red Sea, it is big. I just want you to picture, uh, we won't picture Port Mac because that's sort of too, much, too rocky in that, but picture a really nice beach. Where's a really nice beach? Just come on. Where's a really nice beach you've been to? Where? Broome. There, that's a perfect one. Big broom. All you can see is sea, right? The tide, it's just a huge expanse of sea. Now, in this particular case, the children of Israel, once again, two to three million, not, not you know, 20 or 30, but two to three million people there they are, there's Pharaoh's army coming on them. All they can see is the dust of the horses and Pharaoh's army are coming and they're stuck. But what does God do? He tells Moses to lift up his staff and he lifts up his staff and the waters part. Now, just say we were in Broome and all of a sudden the waters part and as high as this church, the waters part. And that's what it basically would have been. And you could probably go on along and sort of poke the water and saw a fish in the water and there's dry land. And two to three million people marched through this, this incredible expanse of, of air because God has pushed the waters back. It wasn't low tide. God pushed the water back. They got through. What happens? 
the staff comes down and the waters come back in and Pharaoh's army is obliterated. Every single one's killed and they make it. And what happens when they get to dry land on the other side, God also says, hey, I want you to travel day and night, but what I'm going to do during the day, I'm going to have this massive big cloud and you'll see it and you can follow it. And I don't know if you've been out, I've done a lot of walks in my time, I've been up north and been Flinders Ranges and I love bushwalking. And I'll tell you what, sometimes when you get where there's trees are a bit higher and you're walking along, you can get totally bamboozled and lost. But you know, God knew that, so he had a big cloud, so all you had to do was look up, there it is, and you just kept marching. Then at night time, this massive pillar of fire, wherever they went, every day it was there, every night, so they knew exactly where they were going. But hey, how are we going to feed all these people, two to three million people? We had trouble feeding you guys for morning tea this morning at the race down to Woolies last night and I reckon we'll just have enough. But you know what? I haven't got the problem of two to three million people to feed tomorrow and the next day and the day after. But that was God's problem. And what did he do? He gave them manna. And we know that, that was everything in that was, it was beautiful to eat, it tasted good and it was fulfilling. And then they ran out of water so Moses taps the rock. And out comes water for two to three million people. And this is what the people were baptised into. They were baptised under Moses and all these miracles. And yet what happened? Within days, within weeks, they fall flat on their face. They start grumbling. They start complaining. And that's why Paul wants to tell us today that, hey, just because you think you're going well, hey, the children of Israel went well, but they also fell as well. It's a really sad verse. In verse 5 it says, Nevertheless... God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So roughly two generations of Israelis ended up dying in the wilderness. Which I think was just Joshua, wasn't it? Joshua and Caleb got to the promised land. Yeah. Out of, yeah. Even Moses didn't make it. Pretty sad, isn't it? Because not only their disobedience, their ignorance to God. Really sad. And that's why Paul wants us to look at these four examples today. Not to say, hey, they were really bad, but to say, hey, this could happen to us. This could happen to our church. We could spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. It's quite easy. We need to realise that these examples are given to us today. Paul gave them to the Corinthian church. He's also giving them to Mount Mount Gambia Baptist Church today. The first one I want to look at today, or what Paul tells us, is idolatry. The worship of idols. That's the first one that Paul brings up. And each one he gives an example and we're going to briefly go through these examples today. Idolatry, the worship of idols or something we worship in the place of Christ. Now in the Old Testament people, they just had to worship an idol. There was something about it, they just had to have something there to worship. Well we're a little bit different today because we worship things like TV, cars, boats, our job, our family. There's all these other things we worship because the definition said something we worship in the place of Christ. So that's our challenge today when we look at this story of idolatry. And the story comes from Exodus 32. It's the story of the golden calf. Now Moses, he's going up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive uh, instructions from the Lord. And the Lord writes with his hand on stone tablets. Amazing, isn't it? Two stone tablets. They didn't have books back then, they just had big stone tablets. But can you imagine God writing his story under some stone tablets for you in his handwriting and he gives them to you and that's what he's given to Moses. Now Moses is up with the Lord probably for a few days, maybe even a week. 
the incredible thing is these children of Israel that have been through so much, they've had the pillar of fire, they've had the cloud, they've had the parting of the Red Sea, they've had the manna, they've had the water and what happens after two or three days? They're grumbling. They say to, they say to Aaron, look, Moses is gone. Our leader's gone. We need something to worship after two or three days. We need something to worship. So poor old Aaron, not quite as strong a leader as Moses, he said, well, just get all your gold, all your gold, just bring it to me. So they bring all their gold to Aaron and he makes a, an image of a calf, a golden calf. And it's funny because Aaron actually says in the morning we'll actually, we'll actually consecrate this to the Lord. So we'll have like a, a worship service to the Lord, not realising that all they wanted to do was worship this calf. And so in the next few days these people are worshipping the calf and it goes from a sort of a very respectable situation to just downright disgusting situation where this, it just says revelry was taking place. And you can just picture what that means. It wasn't good. Because God's up with Moses and he says to Moses, hey Moses, things aren't good down there. You need to get back down there. And there's a big discussion between Moses. You can read it in your own time in Exodus 32 because God was going to obliterate the whole children of Israel and start again through Moses. But Moses talked God out of it and he's able to, I guess, say to God, look, we've only just started. Please, God, give them another chance. So they're given another chance. But it's incredible to think, isn't it, just after two or three days, these people are disobedient. These people cannot stand the fact that Moses isn't there, that things aren't going their way and they want something. They want something crafted for them to worship. And it's funny, isn't it, how um, we can craft things, it doesn't have to be a golden cup, but we can craft things in our mind and uh, that's what we start to worship. And that's what happened. These people started to worship the, um, the golden calf. Moses gets down. It's, this is a, I mean, some of this is really bloodthirsty and I, I thought, sort of think sometimes, you know, God just takes people out for sin. But in the, when I think about it, in the Old Testament, see, God hates sin. And I know in the New Testament, thankfully, Jesus came along and he took, the, he took our place. He, he was the substitute for that sin. But in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. So God had basically said to people, you do not sin. He gave them the Ten Commandments and he said, do not, do not break these. But pe- the people kept breaking them. And so what happens? Moses comes down and he says, who is going to stand with me? And the only tribe that did was the Levite tribe. They stood with him and he told the Levites to go out and to kill the people that had disobeyed. I mean, that sounds pretty disgusting, but they did. They went out and did it and the Lord honoured the Levites for that, for killing the people that disobeyed. And then the Bible says that God put a plague on the people and hundreds and thousands of people died through that plague and through the Levites. It seems really sad, doesn't it, that you have to get to that point, but that is what happened. The people disobeyed, God was angry with the sin and God judged that sin. Okay, so that's that's the first one. So that's, I guess that's the story of idolatry, the story of the golden calf found in Exodus 32. The next one is sexual immorality and that's found in Numbers 25, 1 to 9. And it's interesting because the Israelite men, as they were on their wanderings, they noticed the Moabite women. Obviously, were a beautiful race of women because we read in history that there was, in that time, there, was, there were some beautiful races of people as well as women. Now, the Israelite men took a liking to the Moabite women and it, and it went from just a liking to sexual relationships with them. So they were taking these women with them 
And what happened? Because they were taking the women in with them, they started to worship their gods. They started to get, go along to the feast. So their, their um, god, um, the Moabite people's god, was the god Baal. And we heard, you know, Baal's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. But basically Baal was very similar to the temple of Aphrodite because they used um, prostitutes in their temple. So you came to the temple to have sex. That's what happened. So the Moabite women were all in there. So I guess the Corinthian people would have been able to relate to this. And so here we are, all the Israelite men are going in, they're having sex with the Moabite women, not good. God's looking down and he's angry because once again they've broken one of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting because if you read this story, you find out that there's a man called Phinehas. Phinehas, he's the grandson of Aaron. Now, Moses has said to the people, this is wrong what you're doing. And while he's telling the people, there's an Israeli man having sexual relationships with one of the Moabite women. And the Bible says that Phinehas came along into the tent and he stabbed the man and the women and killed them on the spot. And God honoured him for doing that. And I think, wow, that's a bit gross. But God hates sin. He hates all these things. And because Phinehas did the right thing by God and, and actually took the lives of these two people that were sinning, the Bible says that God honoured Phinehas, the, son, the grandson of Pharaoh. It's, it's, um, it's a little bit freaky, scary sometimes, but I just want you to picture, what if we were the children of Israel? What if we were the ones wandering in the desert? Would we be complaining? Would we be grumbling? Would we be doing the same things that the children of Israel did? Because if we did, there was a good chance we'd just be zapped like this, gone, taken, either through a plague or through the Levites um, killing us. It's pretty freaky, scary, but I believe, as Paul said, it is a warning to us. In the Old Testament, God hated sin. In the New Testament and today, God still hates sin. But as I'll mention later, fortunately Jesus came and died on the cross and enabled us to, there's an interceding taking place for us each time we sin. So there it is. So we've got the idolatry, we've got sexual immorality. The next one Paul mentions is testing the Lord or speaking against God. And this time it's the story found in Numbers 21 and I'll read that because... um, The previous story is probably one of the longest stories of the children of Israel and this story is probably one of the shortest. And I'm going to read it. It comes from Numbers, Numbers 21. And I'm sure you'll be very familiar with this story. One of the shortest stories with the children of Israel. And it says, The children of Israel travelled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at it, they lived. 
So that's the story. So the children of Israel start grumbling or, or testing. I suppose it's more testing the Lord. They're actually speaking out against God. And so what's God do? Once again, he sees the people sinning. He sees them testing his, I guess, testing his patience, testing his will. So he sends snakes. Now we know in that um, time there were venomous snakes, but God sent a lot of venomous snakes. So each time a person was bitten, there was a good chance, just like it is today, if you don't get antivenine, you die. So the people died. The people realised what they'd done and once again they came to Moses and Moses interceded on their behalf. And so God said to Moses, if you make a, um, a snake, put it on a pole, and, and it's not an idol this time, is it? It's something God has said, do it. And he said, everybody that looks at that will live. Now, it's a, once again, it's an amazing story because you've got all the people. Now, just imagine if it's, it's us today. So we've got teachers, we've got doctors, we've got lawyers, we've got students here today. We've got all walks of life. Now, can you imagine back then, just say, if you're a doctor, and you could say, oh, look, you know, your kid gets bitten and your wife gets, oh, look, don't worry, I've got some antivenine in the tent, that'll fix it. And then you've got another guy that he owns 500 goats and he's quite wealthy and he says to his uh, two kids that have been bitten, oh, don't worry, he says, I can afford to pay for the antivenine, you'll be fine. And then you've got others that just don't care, say, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm sick of it anyway, I'm sure I'll get better. So you've got all these different attitudes. And then you've got this other person that's been bitten and he hears Moses say, if you look at the snake, you'll live. And then someone's saying, well, that's just stupid. You know, you need antivenine. You need money. It's not going to work. So they go. And they look at the snake and, oh, I've been, I'm cured. Simple as that. That step of faith to look at the snake and they were cured. Yes, they disobeyed God. They tested the Lord. But God gave an opening for them. He gave them an opportunity to repent and that was just to look at the snake. That was one of the the first faith stories that you can read in the Bible where people had to rely on the faith of what God had said. That is to look at the snake and you will live. And if you read John 3, you'll find all about that story because Jesus quotes this story in John 3 as well. The last one we want to look at today is grumbling and complaining. And isn't it lucky none of us do that here? You know, I can come to church Sunday. It's just so good because none of us grumble and complain. So I'll just skip over this. No, I won't because we are really good. 21st century people, we are so good at grumbling and complaining. We've made an art of it, and particularly in churches. But anyway, in, in the book of Numbers, because it's in, in this particular example, Paul doesn't actually go back to a particular story like he has in the other three. He just says that the angel of death stepped in when people grumbled. Now the angel of death is referred to in the uh, Passover when the angel of death member passed over the houses that had the, the blood on the mantle but it also refers to the, the plagues in the Old Testament because it was the angel of death that struck the people when they had a plague. So all Paul says because of people grumbled that God sent a destroying angel. And I found seven individual circumstances where the children of Israel cl- complained when I went through numbers and, and when it went through the book of Exodus. So it's a, on a regular occasion. Once again, even though they had everything going for them, the cloud, the fire, the manna, the water, they still complained on a regular basis. Isn't it funny how um, even though everything's going well, it just takes one little thing 
or you know, like the minister's away for a couple of weeks, like Moses was away for a couple of weeks, and everything starts to go pear-shaped. People start not only testing their Lord, they start to grumble. They start to complain. We start to grumble when our attention shifts from what we have to what we don't have. The children of Israel didn't seem to notice what God was doing for them. The cloud, the fire, the water, the manna, the crossing of the Red Sea because they were so wrapped up in what God wasn't doing for them. All they could think of was how better off they were in Egypt. And yet they were in, under slavery. They worked 12 to 16 hour days. And if they really thought about it, they hated it. But all they could think of was Egypt. And so often we always go back and think of how good it was when we had that minister, or how good it was when the church was full, how good it was. God doesn't want us to do that. Paul's warning us, don't do that. Please don't do that. I've given you these examples so you don't do that. So here we have it. We've got idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling, all examples that Paul's given us from the wanderings of the children of Israel. But before we judge the children of Israel, it's better to look at what occupies our attention most of the time. Are we wrapped up in what God isn't doing for us? Are we grateful for what God has given us? Or are we just like the children of Israel? So the question today is to me and to you is, Are there idols in my life? God cannot work in us when we elevate anything above him. I'll just say that again. God cannot work in us when we elevate anything above him. Are you caught up in sexual immorality? And I particularly say this to the guys here today. You know, never in the history of the world has it been so easy to get wrapped up in in porn and other things because your phone, your TV, your internet, it's so easy. And we need to be so careful. There's an example being given to us not to do it. And we see later on in the, in the passage that God never tempts us above what we can take. So I really challenge us guys today to be so careful. Be so careful. Don't get caught up in it. Do you test the Lord by speaking against him? Do you speak against the church, against the leadership? Because if you do, you need to be careful. There's been warnings for us not to do it. Are you a grumbler or a complainer? Is your attitude at the end of the service or at the end of the week is to grumble and complain? Please don't do it because Paul has warned us, don't do it. And I believe if, we, if any of these things have caught our attention today, just like the children of Israel, we need to repent. We need to repent of these things that we've done. Because God can't use us and God can't use the church when there's people caught up in these things. You know, the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. It could have taken a couple of days, a, a week at the most, to get where they were going. But it took 40 years. And you know, there are churches today that are in the wilderness, that have taken 40 years, two generations to get nowhere. And we visit, Sharon and I visit regularly a lot of churches around South Australia. There's some really good ones and there's some really bad ones. There was one church we used to go to that every time we went there, they complained, they grumbled the whole time. And it got to a stage where we really set to stop going. Even though they enjoyed the preaching, 
it got to a stage that was really just doing us in because they just complained all the time. And you know what? They are in the wilderness. Nothing's going to happen. They're just going to wander around and around in the wilderness until God touches their lives and shows them that they need to get right with God. They need to repent. There's a, I just want to close off with a story in the book of Joel. And it really touched me because once again it's about the children of Israel. We move on another 400, 500 years. And once again the children of Israel are struggling in their, in their walk with God. They're complaining. They're doing everything wrong they should be doing. And so God speaks to Joel the prophet. And Joel's only mentioned just briefly as a minor prophet. Anyway, God tells Joel that he's going to send a plague. He's going to send a plague of locusts. And it's going to go right through the land because the people back then, they needed their food. They lived off the vineyards, they lived off the, the wheat, they lived off the barley. That was their lifeblood. But God said to Joel, I'm going to send a plague of locusts and it's just going to take everything, everything. And that's exactly what happened. Everything was taken from the land. I don't know if you've ever seen a plague. I've seen a, sort of a reasonably bad locust plague, but, but they reckon some places like in America and in Europe and in Australia, when a pl plague of locusts comes through, it just takes everything in its path. Right down to the stubble, there is nothing left. And that's what happened in the story of Joel. And the people realised that they'd sinned against God and they repented. And I love what God tells Joel. Once again, this, you need to read it. But there's a passage in Joel 2.25. It says, and God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. So even though God is a punishing God, he's also a loving God. He's a caring God. He's a faithful God. And he said to the children of Israel, everything you've lost, all those years you've lost, I'm going to give them back to you. And that's what I want to tell you today, that if you've been caught up in idolatry, in sexual immorality, if you've tested the Lord and complained, that you are in the wilderness and our church can be in the wilderness because of that. But God is saying today, he is a faithful God and he's willing to give all that back. And you know, when he gives that back, we see the church come alive. We see things happening in our town. Because as we redefine radical these next few months, the only way our church, our city can get anywhere is if we actually do redefine radical. If we redefine the way we live, the way our church operates, the way we reach out. And in these last few months, I've been challenged. I've started sharing my faith more consistently. I've started giving out my Gideon's Bible more consistently. And you know what's happened? People have responded to that. It's been fantastic to see people responding as I get excited about my faith, as I start sharing my faith. And that's only come because I've been here and I've been challenged through, through 1 Corinthians and the things that we need to do to redefine radical, as we need to redefine our walk with God. So I pray this morning that as a congregation, that as a church, that you remember that God will give back everything that the locust has eaten. And maybe today is a day where we're going to draw a line in the sand and we're going to say, yes, that old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray.